You are the foundation of your family. You are the firm footing they build their lives on. You carry a glorious burden and you never dream of laying it down. You carry it with joy and gratitude. You show up even when you don't feel like it. You lead, serve, love, and protect. You are a father. This is the Dad Work Podcast, where men are forged into elite husbands and fathers by learning what it takes to become harder to kill, easier to love, and equipped to lead. Get ready to start building the only legacy that truly matters, your family. Welcome to the Dad Work Podcast. My name is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of Dad Work. And today I am joined by Jeremy Pryor. This is an awesome conversation, guys. I've been really enjoying what Jeremy's been putting out lately. And we go deep talking about a whole bunch of stuff, including how a trip to Israel drastically changed Jeremy's view of fatherhood and family, why the modern Western idea of family is backward, how to create a family team rather than a household of loosely connected individuals, how to create a strong family culture. Why optimizing for spending way more time with your family is worth a small decrease in efficiency at the office, a father's true role and why it's so different from what society thinks today, the multi-generational mindset required to truly succeed as a father and family leader, and finally, and most shockingly for so many of you, I'm sure, what Bluey gets wrong about fatherhood. Coming in hot. (laughs) Anyway, Jeremy met his wife, April, in Jerusalem in 1997 when they were students. They spent the last 20 years building team prior together. They've got five kids and they live in a multi-generational house with Jeremy's parents in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, just a few miles from Cincinnati, Ohio. They founded and led several businesses and nonprofits, including Epiphio, a video production agency, Just So, a quilt shop, FamilyTeams.com, which is training content for families, and 1,000 Houses, a network of Cincinnati disciple-making households. You can check out everything that I just mentioned, including other links to Jeremy's stuff, his podcast, uh, the social media links, everything else, dad.work slash podcast. You can check out FamilyTeams.com for more about the family team-specific discussions that we have here. But like I said, dad.work slash podcast is going to be where you find everything that has to do with Jeremy and what he's been working on as well. This was a massively valuable podcast for me personally. And so I know you guys are going to get a ton of value out of this. Thank you to Jeremy for sharing all this wisdom and for doing the work he's doing. It's actually, it's just incredible to think of family in this way. And it takes you leaving the modern cultural narrative. And that's hard for a lot of guys because we're so into it, we can't even see the forest for the tree sometimes. But I want you to uh, open your mind when you're listening to this because I think that Jeremy's onto something very important. And I would like to build my family in the way that Jeremy talks about here, which is multi-generational family team. Okay, so let's get into this episode with Jeremy Pryor. And guys, if you haven't already signed up for the 10-Day Elite Dad Challenge at dad.work slash challenge, I encourage you to do that because that is where I go into 10 days of 10 actions that you can take to become an elite family leader. And that's going to make a massive difference in how you parent, how you are in your marriage, and uh, just the trust and the respect you get in your household. So dad.work slash challenge is where you can find that. Let's jump into today's episode of the Dad Work Podcast with Jeremy Pryor. Here we go. All right, dads, back for another exciting episode of the Dad Work Podcast. I am very blessed to have Jeremy Pryor with me today. And uh, like I was saying, I have seen your work over the last couple of years since I've been in this space. And it's always been like different. It's always been grounded in a way that really attracts me. Um, and you talk about like multi-generational families, which, man, there's something that calls to my heart about that. And it's so far outside the norm these days yeah. that I'm like, oh, am, am I getting this wrong? Or what, like, what is it about this? So Man, first of all, thank you so much for being here. And could you maybe just set the stage for family teams specifically? Why is this a thing? Where did you come from? Did you just, did you grow up like this? Um, maybe set the stage and we'll get into what family teams actually are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, excited to be our, on this with you, Kurt. So, yeah, this has been quite a journey for me as well. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up uh, in the Northwest, not too far from you in Seattle, just south of Seattle. And uh, a lot of a lot of what I experienced, uh, I come from a multi-generational believing family. And so there was a, there was a lot of health in, you know, in the way that we and our community experienced family, but we were kind of a, you know, kind of a, in in a a sea of just complete chaos when it came to family. Um, It was, it was so predictable that people in, uh, in my friend group were going, that their parents were going through divorces, that family just looked like a, 
a experiment that had gone totally off the rails. And so I, I got involved in youth ministry. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time working with kids, working with kids in the public school system, kids that were, you know, in the faith, far from the faith. Uh, but just uh, there was so much destruction when it came to family that that I, I had very little interest, to be honest, in in the whole project. I mean, I, I, I wanted to get married someday, but I, I was like, do I ever want to be a dad? I mean, it just seemed very... Uh, you know, like, like very risky almost. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, just really come to that conclusion. I saw a lot of people in our culture really opting out of having kids. Uh, Seattle, I think was the first uh, city where there was more dogs than kids. Um, and I could see why, I mean, there, it, it was like, if you have those nurturing instincts and you want to enjoy that, then it's a lot safer to think about that when it comes to an animal, but why bring a child into this world? Or, you know, there's so many reasons why people were kind of uh, hesitant to to really build a family. Um, and so I was single, 23 years old, kind of immersed in that kind of a culture. And I suddenly found myself in Jerusalem. Uh, I was doing a semester abroad. I was there to learn Hebrew. I was really excited about studying the Old Testament. But what I kept seeing uh, repeatedly was fathers and children everywhere. The fathers having a lot of kids and uh, one day I was just sitting on a bench and I saw a group of uh, Jewish fathers pushing strollers with little kids in tow. And I was like, that's the, one of the weirdest sights I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen like mommy brigades go by with a bunch of strollers. I've never seen a daddy brigade before. Um, and it, it sort of was the first time I started to really ask the question, like, what, what are they, why, what are these men doing? Like, don't they understand how annoying children are? Don't they know how unpredictable family is? Don't they know how how much it destroys your freedom. Like I very much like when you encounter another culture, you kind of have, you know, your various reactions. And I think one of them tends to be almost subconsciously thinking that your culture is superior and you've got to figure it out. And these guys are maybe backwards in some way. But then I was like, well, that can't be it because like, look at my culture. <laughs> like, like none of the dads, you know, uh, kind of in a secular culture in Seattle, like they, they were not, they're not excited about fatherhood. I mean, just, it's like, and so, uh, so I started asking questions, and the deeper I got in talking to Jewish fathers about why they were passionate about fatherhood, um, it, it's, it tended to always come down to one word, Abraham. And they really uh, were fixated on the character of Abraham in the Bible as being a meta-father. And it's, it's not hard to understand why. In Hebrew, uh, his name Avram, that was his original name, it actually means meta-father or exalted father. Um, so Abram and then Abraham, which means father of many nations, he was, he, he is sort of a Hebraic description of fatherhood and how God interacts with fatherhood. He's not a perfect father by any means. Otherwise he couldn't be a good meta father. He, but he, he really embodies what this, this, uh, this role, um, really was designed to be and, and interacts with God in that way. And so, um, so I started studying Abraham from the perspective of fatherhood for the first time. And, uh, you know, the, one of the first things that really stands out to you is that Abraham is obsessed with his descendants. I mean, he's like pleading with God for a son, like pleading with God to build his multi-generational family line. And I always thought it was a very primitive way to, to see family, you know, and that this was something that, you know, is part of the cultural context of the Bible, but not at all instructive for, for fathers today. But now I'm in a culture in the modern world where dads actually think that way where dads were were really interested in building multi-generational families, where a lot of these men were coming from multi-generational families. They could root their entire genealogy all the way back to Abraham. And so I, I began to just sort of imagine what that would do to me as a father if I, if I actually thought that God um, built a fathers to build multi-generational families. Is Abraham a metafather or not? And if you look through the, entire, the entirety of Scripture, you really see this, this trend uh, of how fathers think about family multi-generationally and God constantly reinforcing it. He's never correcting them for thinking this way. Um, even with Abraham, Abraham at one point says, what can you give me, God, when I don't have a son? Now, if, if Abraham's going to get rebuked, I think it's going to be in that moment, right? And Abraham's like, no, you will have a son. And I, and I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky, right? And so uh, this is this is a desire, not that, not that fathers should expect God to do, what uh, he did to Abraham, but but all fathers wanted that. And when I was in a culture where both in the Arab and Jewish cultures, they both wanted that. They both, they, these were men who were very excited about being fathers. And in, in, in those cultures, even, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for the fathers of the men to be more into family than the women, um, because they think about family in this way. And I think, so this, this sort of started a breadcrumb for me of like, of an inkling of, of why family is so broken in the West and why Christians 
have basically adopted the same blueprint of family that the culture has. And if I were to just describe that blueprint, probably the easiest way for people to understand it is it's the nest analogy. It's probably the most common word we use for family. You know, it, the idea is that the family is this nurturing environment that's designed to springboard all the individual members of the family out and just resets every generation. So if you have a, if you believe in the nest philosophy of family, family just resets every 80 years. You don't know who your great grandparents are. They're totally irrelevant to your life. Um, it's a very particular philosophy of family and one that is deeply disconnect, disconnected from what men really desire from family. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why it, we have the worst, uh, and America is actually, it's amazing. The United States is the worst country in the world in this area. Um, we have the, the, the largest number of single parent households than any country on the earth. Uh, and so you, every, every single person listening to this needs to have a thesis for why that is. Because we, we are so bad at this that if you just do what the culture tells you to do, just kind of carry on the way that, that we think about family, how are we not going to get the same results? There's something incredibly foundationally broken about our whole view of what family is. And so as I begin to dive deeper and deeper into the Bible, okay, does the Bible describe the family like a nest? Is that the primary way that Abraham would have thought of his family? He's, I'm building this nest, this kind of nurturing environment. All the kids are going to launch off into their own lives. And we're going to reset every gen. That is not the way Abraham saw family. That's not the way any Jewish father who's really reading the, the Old Testament is thinking about family. That's, that, that's not the way God designed family. God designed family. And if you, you go all the way back in, to the very first time families mentioned in the Bible, and God designed the family for a very particular purpose. He says in Genesis 1 that he created male and female. He brought them together and sa says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. So he gave the family, he created the family for a purpose, to do something together. We have a word for that in English, which is a team, right? So he designed the first family to be a team, and he gave them a job that they could never accomplish in one generation. So they're a multi-generational team, and he gave them a mission right? To fill and subdue the earth, to be multiplied and to rule. And so, and so I just took the words that are just naturally there, the words that we would use for what he's describing. And, and really he's describing family as a multi-generational team on mission. And I can't really think of a almost more different idea family from the nest than that. The, the nest idea is we're all individuals. We, we really, are, the family is really emptied of its purpose of, it's not really a team. Um, it's kind of a recharging station. And then we all launch out into our lives. And then the other is we're constantly, you know, functioning as a team to, to accomplish things together. And so it's like, I think you have to pick. I think you have to decide what you believe. Like, which one do you think is actually, uh, number one, you can ask if you're a Christian, you can ask which one you think is more biblical. If you're not a Christian or for, you can ask the question, which one would you rather build? You know, like you, you could just like every you know, individuals can adopt a philosophy of life to decide how they want to operate. Don't want to have a victim mentality or growth mindset or all the things we talk about today. Well, you can you can decide what kind of family you want to build. And so I, I sort of I just a, did a hard flip and said, OK, I I'm going to build this multi-generational team on mission. I went from having almost no interest in having kids to having five kids, you know, and um, and I, I started build, building businesses because I wanted to do more with my family. We started a nonprofit. We've, we've done, and we, all of this is really, we're doing as a team, but it all kind of comes down to, we're trying to do this. Like this is intentional. We we're functioning as a team, um, or kind of more ancient way to call that is as a household. Um, we, we, we are a household, uh, with an economic, you know, several businesses and economic engines in the center you know, it emanates out from there, um, where we are designed to uh, to do ministry and to do work and to do life in and through the family. Man, well, thank you for that rundown. That is so encouraging for me. Like that's exciting. I want that for my family. And oftentimes, I've come across this. Um, I think you said independence, right? Like that's the the calling word today. It's like we just yeah. we're so independent. It's all about me. It's a very self loving culture society. And that, that has no room in the family. And so how are you supposed to come together as a group of individuals? It's like, well, maybe yes. you're not. And I, you, you said you sort of, you flipped. Uh, what was it like then going through that? Because I think you met your wife on that Jerusalem trip. Is that right? We did, yes. Okay, so, mm -hmm. so you guys meet, you just had this revelation and you're like, okay, we're just going to go all in. Did you have mentors? Did you have anything to look to? Did you come across any things along the way that were like, okay, I know this looks awesome and I want to be an Abraham, uh, Abrahamic father, but I didn't expect this. Like, what were those points along the way? Or was it just like, 
doesn't matter. We're just having five kids. I don't care. Like, what was your process <laughs> to actually build that yeah. family team yourself? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, so it definitely was a, a very slow process for me in April. So I, I was first exposed to these ideas when we were in Jerusalem. I was attracted to them for sure, but I had no idea how to implement them. You know, I was like, well, what does this even look like? And so as we, so we basically over the next, you know, I would say, especially the first five to 10 years of our marriage, we looked at every decision through these two lenses, you know, what, what would we do differently? So we approached birth control, you know, from that perspective, we, we approached, you know, um, the way that we thought about work from this perspective, you know, we thought about traditions as a family. And one of the things that we immediately discovered was that, that, that there's actually an enormous number of tools that the Western culture has for building individuals. And if you're, if you are, and I, I think a lot of those are really good. I mean, if you're, if you want to be the best violinist in the world, come to America, you know, come to North America and you'll, you'll, there'll be, you'll be tutors. You know, if you go to, a, if you go to a, a city, there'll, there'll be all kinds of things. If you want to, you know, get involved in a sport, I mean, we're really good at this. And I think that there's a lot of that that's actually very positive. But if you're trying to build a team, like what, what tools do you have? Um, and we sort of opened up the, our toolbox for, you know, for how to do this. And we, we, it was just empty. We didn't know how to do it. And so we just kept going back to Israel and like learning from Jewish families. Um, you know, one, one, one of the things that really, really surprised us. So we'd spend like seasons just living in Jerusalem um, as a family. And, you know, we saw how on Shabbat, like the day before their Sabbath, this Friday afternoon, everyone was going to their parents' house. Didn't matter if they were in their 30s. They were heading to their parents' house. Uh, and they, they were having this multi-generational meal every single week. In our culture, we tend to do that once or twice a year, like maybe Thanksgiving, Christmas, and it's we're so out of practice by the time we get to that meal that it's it's like how can we survive, you know this this thing. Uh, whereas they're very practiced at it; they they are used to getting together every single week as a family and experiencing their familyness, their multi generational connections, and so this causes them to create a certain kind of family. And so. Um, there was a time where we, you know, after we had a, maybe our fourth child, we, we still weren't, we still weren't doing this, you know, this, uh, weekly Sabbath dinner around the third or fourth child. And I just watched our family slowly start to disintegrate. And I started to think about, you know, this tool, uh, and, uh, and I used to think, well, that's Jewish, you know, we'll have to invent our own things, I guess. Um, but it, I got really desperate. I'm like, you know, we're just going to do that Shabbat thing and we're going to do it very much like the way the Jews do it because I'm, I, uh, I don't know how else to lead this family as a team. You know, I know how to help each of us become individuals, um, but I don't want that, you know. And so all of the cultural, you know, sort of flow is going the other direction. And so we kind of put a stake in the ground and every, you know, we started doing it on Saturday night. Then you know, seven years later, we started, we flipped it to Friday night and we, we did a, you know, a multi-generational meal. And then we would do a day of rest together. And this was kind of a stake in the ground for us. What really started to turn our family. And I've told people, like, if you get really good at this practice, if you create an evening once a week that's designed to experience like an epic, you know, multi-generational family meal where a son is a son and a daughter is a daughter and a mother is a mother and a father is a father. And maybe, you know, if, if they're healthy, you could unfold uh, upstream generations or, you know, siblings or, you know, other friends. Uh, if you do this, you get really good at this, at this, uh, at, at doing this kind of meal I don't think you can stop a multi-generational family from, from starting because it's so powerful to, uh, cause you know, one of the first things we do when we have our, our Sabbath dinner is we bless the sons, we bless the daughters. Like we, there's, there's ways that the Jews have really discovered how to help you kind of internalize and experience, uh, what your family role as a, as a part of that, as a part of that meal. Um, and so, so that, that became, you know, probably the, one of the strongest tools. There's many others we've discovered and, and have, implemented it, it is kind of like having an operating system that you install on your family you know like where you're like let's start doing this every week and let's start doing this practice and this practice and and, and not necessarily like those practices start to transform the kind of family you have i think it's a lot more practical than than just like it being an abstract idea that you're, you're trying to hold in your head while you kind of go about uh, your normal life yeah. Wow. That, that is so encouraging because I feel as though I am in this mode of like, well, I'm just going to make up everything. I'm just going to do yeah. it myself. And it's so good to hear that it's actually part of a long line. And there's probably a lot of research I can do from you guys and from other cultures because we've been doing something like this. I mean, we eat together five, six, probably six to seven times a week just with our family. I work from home. My wife doesn't work. Kids are, you know, 10 through zero. Um, so it's easy for now. And I love the idea of making that 
special and having the blessings, but we've also started doing weekly family meetings and weekly yeah. spousal check-ins. And it's like, yes, we can't, nobody in the family can get far enough away to be untethered. And it's like, yes. get back in here. We row the boat together. Um, mm. Are there a couple other things? Like I know, I, actually, I don't know. I'm assuming that there's probably a lot of this kind of stuff at family teams, uh, whatever the website is.com. I think it is. Um, yes. Is there anything else along the way that are like specific tools that people can use like the dinner, like the family meeting? Um, did anything else help? Because as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, you're starting from pretty well scratch in this society. And how am I keeping my kids engaged? So any thoughts on, on actionable items like that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, you know, and we, we do a lot of family teams, but yeah, I think another one that's really big that people are very need to really deal with is sports. So because sports are designed around uh, the individual, it's very difficult if you have, especially a larger family, three, four, five kids, uh, you get to a place very quickly where, um, you, it's sort of that tool, again, it's very, very useful for helping find the individual strengths of a child and releasing that individual strength. But it, it does tend to come at a pretty steep cost to the family being a cohesive team. And so I was constantly trying to figure out like, are there like family team sports? <laughs> like, is that a thing? And, you know, it really isn't a thing. Um, and so I, I wish it were. And so I started to try to figure this out and you know, we decided to go all in on tennis for a couple of years. We went all in on Taekwondo where we had our own, you know, sort of time, you know, for three years where we're all leveling up together, you know, being trained together because, you you know, you can do that kind of training from all the way down to like a three-year-old all the way up to an adult. Um, and we got, you know, we're very into pickleball right now as a family. Um, I just interviewed for my podcast. It hasn't gone out yet, but I, I, a dad that's in one of our um, our coaching programs he started a a, uh, a all family kickball league, and this this was such a brilliant idea. And so they have eight families that sign up for each season, and the families actually compete against each other. And he's actually rearranged the rules in such a way that that it, it actually works, where a family with mostly little kids can compete against a family with like teenagers and actually go head to head. It's crazy. He's, he's, it's a brilliant idea, um, and the dads and are, are playing and coaching their kids. The moms are in there playing alongside the, the family. It's a, uh, it's a really cool idea. So, so that's just another example of you kind of have to take things that, that are pulling the family apart and then create an alternative uh, way to do this as a team. And that, you know, church is another place where I think, you know, if people go and just constantly experience just nothing but separation, it's like, how can we do this in a way that we're doing this together? Like, how can we experience our faith as a family? Why do we constantly give into uh, sort of that that cultural tr trend of like separating everyone by life stage groups and and just ripping the family into its little units. We, if we do that over and over and over again, then then you're not going to be able like it's going to take an enormous toll on the family. So those are a couple examples. Yeah, thank you for that. And the, the church one's so interesting because we've only been going for about a year now and we started bringing ours into the main service because it's like what you just said. I don't yes. want them to get used to like, I go away. I want them to get used to the discipline of sitting there, the discipline of leading it, lear learning what's going on, being around the people, feeling the fellowship. And man, it, even at church, and we have a wonderful church, but you get the oh, you're taking up a lot of space. Like these kids, <laughs> they, they can go elsewhere, right? And it's like, right. I got four kids and we take up like an entire row and yet like too bad. You know, if you're still right. in this sort of secular worldly mindset that we should just put the kids elsewhere, like I gotta be comfortable bringing them in there, but that's been a struggle. And I think like what you just said about um, having a lens through which to view everything is so important. And that's what we started doing a while ago, like years ago before any of this, um, any of our faith started maturing was like, we started doing a self audit. So even where we live, why do we live here? And if you ask like the fundamental first principles questions, you find that a lot of stuff you're doing is inertia, not intentional. Yes. Um, so did you guys come across that as well? Like going through maybe during family meetings, uh, maybe just check-ins with your wife. Like I will often say like, what are your expectations financially for us? And it's like, yes. oh, well, we haven't checked on that for a couple of months. Are we going the right direction? So what is that? I guess maybe like, that's a leadership question, I suppose. Um, but is. what is your role as leader of this family team, almost like a ship, I guess. That's right. Yeah, you have to be able to craft a vision for your family. And and a lot of that, I, I like thinking about vision very much in a very concrete way. And that is, is seeing. It's seeing 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. What do you want this to look like? Like an, a huge example for me was when I was in my late 20s, you know, we were starting a business 
And um, we had an investor who came in and he bought half the business. And during, during the board meetings, we'd be sitting there. He was maybe in his late 50s or early 60s. And he had his three sons in every board meeting. And we do this for three hours every month. And his sons were sitting there. And during the meetings, he would constantly pause and just look at his sons and start to train them because their, their, they, their family owned a whole portfolio of businesses. And he was getting them ready you know, over the next five to 10 years to really take over the businesses. But one of the things that struck me was I was sitting there in the meeting one day and I was looking as he kind of spent 20 minutes talking to his sons about something. And I was like, man, this guy, he spends more time with his, his, his sons in their thirties than most dads spend with their kids when they're still in the house. Um, now I, I don't think that has to be the case. I don't want to force my kids to do that, but I would love for that to be an option. Is there, is there a particular, like, I just don't, I've never seen this before. So, you know, at a, at, at that young age, I decided this is an, this is a vision thing. That's why you have to, you have to actually look at the future and start to say, okay, if I want that to be an option 20 years from now, what do I have to do today to start to move in that direction? So, yeah, I think, I think that you have to, you have to envision these things. And so things like, you know, work and, you know, location, like you're saying, like, where, where, where are we going to live? Is it likely that where we, where, where we live is going to be a place where our kids are going to be comfortable? One of the things that, you know, and likely stay kind of close if we're going to really continue to, to be a team together. Again, not forcing them. There are seasons where I think it's totally appropriate for them to be in other cities or doing their own thing. But again, I want it to be an option. I want it to be healthy. I want it, I want it to be something that if they were choose, if they choose to do, we could, we could function more and more like a team. And, and that's really worked out definitely in our case. But, you know, as we were looking at different communities in our area, we had a real estate agent who didn't know us at all. You know, we just got to know her um, through through this this particular town. Anyway, as she was taking us around, she kept saying, OK, at the end of this street, that's actually a multi-generational family. They own all five of those houses. And then if we go to the next street. Oh, that's actually a multi-generational family. And they own those four houses. And I was like, how many of these are there in this city? And as I began to really look at the the way the city was designed it's so friendly for this because you have, you know, it's an old town where you, you have like a, a, you know, a duplex or, you know, a, a rental house right next to a really big, nice, beautiful house. And a lot of people don't, don't like that, that are trying to build something where they can be, you know, they can protect the value of their asset, let's say. But man, that's a great idea if you want your kids to be living close to you, your grandkids, if you want to have like stages where people can buy a starter house and then work their way all the way up. It's also very close to the city. We, we're like three miles from downtown Cincinnati, but it's very safe, great schools, all that stuff that people really want multi-generationally. And so I, I started to see this this thing. And yeah, I, so again, the vision of like 15, 20 years, where, where do we want to live? How do we want to work? How do we want to spend our time? What does a year in the life look like? What's a week in the life look like of our family 10, 15, 20 years from now? And I started, you want to just increase the resolution of the, that vision. So that it allows you to make really practical decisions in the present that, that, you know, that begin to move you that direction, begin with the end in mind. And so, but that was really hard for us. And I think it's really hard for people that are trying to do family in a very different way than they're used to, because it's hard to see that vision, you know? So I spent a lot of time just researching and reading about multi-generational families and, you know, anywhere I could get information because, you know, I was trying to increase resolution on that, on that picture. Right. And, and so like your kids now, they probably haven't known anything else because you've been on this path for a while now. But what has their reaction to all this been? Are they still interested in being around? Are they close to you? Do you guys still work together? What has their experience of this been like? And and maybe how have you led it to be that way, assuming that things are pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. So we have five kids. Uh, my oldest daughter, Kelsey, she's 23. She's married. Uh, we're about to have a grandbaby any day now. Amazing. She's, Congrats. Yeah. She's she's due in about uh, in about about a week. So yeah, we're super excited to be grandparents. Um, yeah, her and her husband, they, they live uh, down the street um, from us in the next uh, town over. So they're very close. Uh, and what's really cool. So Kelsey um, and my wife, April own a business together. Um, and so that's, that's been something they've been working on for the last five years uh, alongside of her mother, uh, my mother-in-law. And so that's a big part of our lives. Kelsey and I work together on a real estate company. And so she's the property manager of our, of our real estate assets. And then Kelsey's also my personal assistant for all things, social media, uh, my son, Jackson and I, so Jackson's 22, uh, Jackson's single. Um, he, he lives in a, in a guy's ministry house that, that he and I, and some other guys uh, lead together. Um, and so they're constantly on mission. 
Um, he's, he's actually, he and all of his friends who are living on the house um, are starting a business. We do business coaching. So we do a theology class together, business coaching class. And, and so we're, we're working on that. It would just before I got on this call, Jackson and I were, you know, working on, on the business. Um, and so that, that's a you know place where we can constantly overlap and, you know, be in that, that place. Um, our next daughter, Sydney, she just got back from Japan. Um, she's um, been on mission over there. Kind of our, our narrative that we've been encouraging our kids to think about is that when they graduate from high school to basically go on a mission um, and uh, and give their lives totally to the Lord um, and and be, you know, um, fully engaged in that way. Jackson also had done that for the last couple of years and I was doing that here in Cincinnati. Um, and Sydney is feeling really called to Asia um, and say, look, w- once you guys start to have kids, obviously you're, the narrative is going to flip really fast and you're going to need a lot of stability. And we're here and we're prepared to help you guys. If you want to raise families, you want to start businesses, um, you know, you guys know that they've always kind of grown up in that culture with us. And so I think they're all excited about that. And because we have that really dialed in, I'm just like, go, go all out while you're single, because, you know, when you start having kids, it'll be, it'll be a season of, you know, probably being hunkered down and, and really building assets and, and raising families and our kids, all of our kids are, have such a huge value for family and having kids. I have four daughters, they all can't wait to be mothers. And, you know, it was just part of the culture that, that we had growing up and, and they had growing up. So, and uh, our other girls are also in the house um, and, and also, you know, preparing to do that as well as, you know, very into um, their own, you know, various educational pursuits right now. So, so that, it's, that's kind of been the, the makeup. And we also, we do a ministry um, as a household. We have a house church and we, uh, we do a lot of, a lot of things in and through our house. Um, so every Thursday night and Sunday night, we have various uh, activities here in the house and every other Tuesday night. And so they're always helping host. And we, it's just a, uh, we kind of designed our house to be sort of a ministry outpost um, it's not really our place to retreat. You know, we have areas of the house where we can go and be by ourselves and recover. But the sort of the center of the house is kind of a buzz of of activity, uh, business, ministry activity. And that was kind of our heart for what we wanted. Because we wanted, in order to put it in, the reason why we put it in the house is, is not so much that we, you know, we, we don't want to ever get away from it. It really is because we want to be a household where we're all working on it together. It, it has to do with that team idea. Um, and so instead of going off to the office, you know, we, we really center all of our activity in our house. Man, that I'm so fired up. <laughs> this is what I want so much, man. And I really appreciate you sharing this because my vision um, is being that patriarch of like hundreds of great grandkids, just like yeah. being in that rocking chair at 98 years old, looking out going like, <laughs> ah, you know, everyone is loving. Everyone is, you know, together because yeah. I put the work in. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I hope for my life. And I love the fact that you're doing it out of the home, because one of the other things that I read um, was you talking about family as a compartment of where you spend your time. And it seems like this is the exact opposite of that. It seems yes. like you guys just do so much together on purpose that there's no time away from it to get apart, but it sounds joyous. Like it, it really does, at least from my perspective. Um, and so do you want to maybe just touch on that, like where family is a compartment and we just check it off as the so-called work-life balance? Yeah. Well, I do think that that's kind of the buzzword, and it does it does come down a little bit to whether or not you're you are uh, an employee, right? Because one of the you know one of the kind of basic assumptions you have when you hire an employee is that when you're on the clock, you're one hundred percent, you know, like you know, working on the business, or else you know I'm not going to pay. So there's no real possibility of integration in most jobs. Most jobs, it's like even if even if there was like one percent reduced, uh, you know, efficiency on the job so that I can involve my family or in some very small way, that would be inappropriate in a lot of workplaces, right? Because it's like, no, 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 that's, we have a very strong firewall between family and work. That's a very unusual idea. And I think that people don't understand how strange that is. That really is an outgrowth of the industrial revolution. And I, I think it's deeply unhealthy. Um, and so, but it's very difficult to get away from that if you're working. And so what we, we, we decided to build assets and start businesses really for the purpose of integration. Because if you're working for an employee employer, then probably work-life balance is something you want to maintain in order to make sure that, you know, that if you're going to give them a hundred percent of that work time, then you don't want to give them even 1% of your family time. So create that balance and, and make that firewall really, really high. Um, we have a totally different philosophy though. Our philosophy is not work-life balance, but integration. So what we, we don't want to know when we're working and when we're playing and when we're doing ministry, like none of that stuff really matters, you know, as categories for us, 
I mean, there are times where we, we you know, we want, we definitely want to do like high quality work, but you know, when, when the kids were growing up, they had a day of the week, they each went to work with me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I had five kids. And so one of my kids came Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I had, I had one of my kids with me all the time. And did that, was that, uh, did that hit my efficiency? Yeah, it probably, it probably made me 5% less efficient as a worker. And I got to spend seven or eight hours a week with one of my kids. So is that a trade-off I'm willing to? Yes. That's a very easy trade-off because I own the business and I'm happy to have the business take that hit. Um, again, that's a decision you could make when you are, when you own the business, but that, that's why I, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in integration. We have a, we have a, a mastermind that we lead me and uh, Jeff Bethke. And it's really for guys who want to, who are, who are believers who own their own businesses. And it's called integrated because what we found was there's so many guys who uh, they've already gone down this path of owning a business, but they're still acting as if they are in an employer employee sort of situation. Cause that's all they've ever known from a mindset. And so we spend time getting together twice a year. And I really work to try to train uh, these dads to think totally differently about work and family and faith. Like integration is a very different pursuit than balance or s- separation or atomization. And so like sociologists have looked at our culture and said, there's never been in the history of the world that we've ever seen a culture that's more atomized, right? Where everything is separated, where your your work life is separated from your church life, is separated from your family life, is separated from your hobbies, is separated. I mean, all of these things and people are burning out because we're not supposed to live in that kind of atomization. When you start to integrate things, then you start doing three things at once, you know, relationally. I am, I'm at work, but I'm also building up my relationship with my wife, right? I'm doing my hobbies, but I'm also hanging out with my son. You know, like I'm, I'm doing ministry, but I'm doing it and we're all doing it together as a family and the entire family team's involved at the same time while we're doing ministry. Um, and that's integration. That's a totally different vision than atomization. But we are so, it's like, like we, we've, we've gone so far into atomization now that I think people, it's like they've never even seen integration before. So it's very confusing how to even begin to think in this way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, man, you just put to words what I have been feeling a lot lately, which is, um, I, I just don't have the time to do all this. And it doesn't make sense that it needs to all be done separately. Like, right. I don't know when other people are doing 37 other things, but I got the family and I've got my business and like we try and do everything else together, but like I can't do a million other things. And I have felt as though I was just failing as though I didn't have enough time or I was being inefficient. And it's like, well, I don't know what these other people are doing. And I think they're just making a trade-off that I'm not willing to make. So it's actually useful for me to hear that that's not really natural. It's not very efficient. It's not very good for the family. And one of the questions that I was going to ask, which I think you've mostly covered already, is like, what are you optimizing for here? And I think I can probably understand what you are saying as you know, family teams and all that kind of stuff. You're probably optimizing for that close-knit structure that, you know, God first, everyone going towards that, and it can be done together But I think a lot of people don't ask themselves this question. Like, what are you, listener, optimizing for? And I think what you're saying is like family, 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 man. Like, what could be more important? Is that about right? Because I just, man, yeah, go ahead. My favorite business business metric, really, what I'm driving at is, is how much time can we spend together building the kingdom of God? Like, that's Mm -hmm. what I care about. So if we could spend... Five more hours, 10 more hours, 20 more hours, 30 more hours. Um, and so as our businesses have flourished, we've just poured more and more and more time into what we felt is the most meaningful thing we could possibly do and do it together. Because again, even churches and ministries, they atomize people from their family, right? They're like, we're not hiring your family. We're hiring you, which makes sense at one level, because if you, they were hiring your family, they would become your, the father of the family. Um, and so this is, this is where things get kind of tricky. You have to develop the income streams and the, uh, the assets in order to uh, free up the time and the resources to be able to go on mission together as a family. Now, there's other ways to do that, of course, but that's the way we really wanted to do it because we, we wanted our leadership, you know, the family leadership that, that is under me and my wife to really be the thing generating, um, you know, the, the things that we felt God, God calling us to do. So we will spend time, you know, on mission. So we, we, we do um, you know, a lot of kind of very immersive kinds of things. Like we, we spend time every year in Israel as a family. Um, you know, we're, we're heading to, uh, to back to Seattle to spend, uh, a month there on, on mission, uh, in August. 
Um, we have lots of other trips, we probably go on six or seven other smaller, shorter trips every year as a family to do different ministry projects and uh, things together. And then we're constantly, our normal week is just, you know, constant ministry and mission in our city. Um, and and that that was a faucet that we basically, you know, would turn way down to a one when we were struggling financially and really needed to focus on building businesses and building income streams. And then as, and I told the Lord, look, as soon as you bless, you know, this, this income, we're, we're not going to just like more, 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 more money. Like what we really wanted was more, more, more ministry together as a team. Um, and a part of that's our, my calling, our calling as a family, I think different families, different callings. And so I think you have to get to figure out what is God calling your family to do. And, and I, I feel like we have a handful of ministry callings. We all feel very passionate about, and that, that, that's expanding now with our kids. You know, like I said, my, our middle daughter, Sydney, she has a huge passion for Asia. And so our question isn't like, how do we atomize her and just, you know, launch her off and then, you know, see her maybe Christmas, you know, every other year. It's like, okay, Sydney's going to lead our family into Asia. Like, how are we all going to get behind her? Like, this is not a, you're not alone. You're not, you're not an isolated person. You have a whole army behind you of, of people who love you, who believe in you, who have resources and are prepared for this moment. When God gave you a calling, we're going to get all behind you, you know, together. Um, that's, that's what I feel like families were built to do. And this is very strange for people because, you know, you think about in Genesis 1, you talk about what's, what's a family in general supposed to be optimizing for. And one of the things that I, I do think families optimize for comfort and, you know, something that's kind of like very internal to the family. Um, but God had a mission. You know, he said he told the family to rule. That was the ultimate sort of be fruitful, multiply, subdue and rule. And if if we wanted to, if we if we had a mission like that, we would think, oh, I'm going to start a nonprofit or a, you know, a business or something. And God said, oh, no, I want to start a family. That's what rules. That's what that's what does this work. And that's the entity. And I think one of the reasons is because uh, a family is different. A family is much more is much more balanced. It does love. It does have compassion. You know, it isn't psychopathic, you know, the way organizations tend to be or one dimensional. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. Now you lose some efficiency. And I think this is, again, can't be, you know, overstated is that our culture, capitalism, the things, the way that we're wired, it is for maximum efficiency. And the only way to resist that is you have to have a vision that says, okay, no, this is a better way to do it. Yes. As a family, you know, you know, bringing a three and a three and a five-year-old, you know, on this thing that we're going on is slightly, you know, less efficient. We're going to have to deal with that. But it's, it's also a different thing altogether. It transforms this into a family activity, into a place where love and, and things are done at the pace of, of, of humanity uh, and not at the, p- the pace of machines. Um, and so this is, I, 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 this is part of what you just have to embrace as a vision that God's built our household to, to do things together. And we want to, we want to be on those missions, you know, uh, as a team. So good. I love that. Yeah. That, that's so, again, it's, this is very encouraging. I'm just eating this up. So thank you for that. And I want to talk briefly about the business side of things. Um, I've been thinking about this, um, probably because I've been reading your posts more often, like, what do I do? And I've almost thought like, maybe I just need to start another business so that I can bring the kids involved because like my business is dad work. We've got a coaching program. We bring guys through that and I'm in here and it's like very meta in a sense. Cause it's like, how am I going to bring my children into this anyway? Like I don't, maybe when we get shirts, they'll pick and pack for me. Like that's a cool idea. I've seen other dads do that, but I'm not sure what to do in my situation. I've almost thought about having another business. So are there like parameters that you guys typically optimize around when it comes to business? Like, are they local? Are they brick and mortar? Are they online? What do you think about when you start these? And it seems like you're pretty good and quick at doing them. Um, so maybe just give us an overview of how you think about business as a family team. Yeah. So the framework, and so I coach about a hundred families a year through this thing called Family Inc. And the framework that I kind of share, and a lot of this is because a lot of families that are coming to us, they are in, in they're in an employment situation, and they already have a family, and so they, there's only so much risk they can take uh, in order to make this transition. So it's a, it's definitely a, a risky thing to move a family uh, to a completely different way of making money. And so I basically, the framework we use is, um, is that you don't start one business, you start three businesses, not all at the same time, but, but pretty rapidly one after another, um, within a few years. 
And so the first business is often a service-based business. We call that a freedom business. So that's to get you the freedom out of the job. And and so there's, there are, people don't realize this, unfortunately, because there is sort of a, this uh, an, an understanding of what, what, a, what a startup is, what a, who an entrepreneur is. Um, it's all sort of Shark Tank or, you know, Steve Jobs, or it's all fixated in the, in the tech world. That, that is a tiny fraction of the, of, of really of business owners. Most businesses are regional service-based businesses. And there's never, I don't think there's ever been a better time to start one of these than now. I mean, it is crazy how you know, people have pushed their kids so, so dramatically towards college and specialization that the trades, there are so many people in different, different parts that are just, they're aging out and they don't have anyone to sell their business to. Um, and so what we talk about is, is first start with a freedom business, have a service-based business that will help replace your income, you know, pretty quickly, you know, and, and we have, we have a whole library of ideas of families that have made this transition, you know, different kinds of businesses that you can start that are, that are in that. But a lot of it does come down to how you're wired, what's, what's in your area, what new technologies might be coming on online that you guys might be able to offer a service. And the reason why you do that is, is in a service-based business, you can pull all the income out every month without hurting the business because it's really still based on your time. It doesn't usually require a whole lot of equipment. And, you know, there's a lot of industries and areas where it doesn't require a lot of training. Um, and so it requires project management, um, sometimes some sales and marketing skills, and then you can really uh, begin to 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 work in that in that arena. And if you want to be technical or get into something technical, that's that's an option as well. But um, but that that's where we start. And then then we say, okay, after you have learned a lot of business lessons from that, you replaced your income, you really worked. Then you start a, a scale business, and this is a business that's not directly tied to your time. Something that that has the potential to scale beyond your time. Um, and so that that's oftentimes the area where kids are least able to integrate um, into that business. So like what you're describing is what I would think of as a scale business. So those tend to be, yeah, the, the ones that are that are least uh, accessible for that integration. You can spend time together. They can see what you're doing. They might be able to do a little task here and there, but it's usually highly specialized. This is the area where you tend to also, you know, if you're going to take on investment, that might be where you take it on. If you're going to take on a partner, that's oftentimes where you'll take it on in the scale business. Uh, the purpose of a scale business is really to, to generate um, enough capital to start the third business, which is the legacy business. These are the capital intensive assets that you're going to earn and uh, over time, and that are going to begin to generate income for your family. So this is often real estate, you know, short-term rentals, long-term rentals. There's also, you know, lots of different asset classes you can buy, um, but capital intensive assets that you begin to steward as a family. I love real estate in whatever form you feel like you can handle it. Um, because that's probably the peak of integration. I tell people in the legacy business, you know, it's best not to partner with other people. Um, this, these are the things that your children will likely inherit. And so you want to really, uh, be, you know, steward those together. And so like, so with, with my two oldest kids, um, I'm constantly engaging them in our, in our legacy business. So I, I, I mentioned Kelsey, he does the property management. Jackson does the, the construction on the, on our, on the houses that we're buying. My wife does the finances and, and I, I, I find the deals. Um, so we all have different and we have meetings together. And we're talking about it and we're involving more and more family members in, in that legacy business. Um, so that's the framework. Uh, you start with something simple, service-based. If you're brand new at this, um, go to scale and then go to legacy. And so like in your case, you have to decide, can you go straight to legacy? Some people scale businesses are doing great. They go straight to legacy. Sometimes they need to you know, grow their scale business first. Sometimes they need to start a you know, service-based business. Great. Excellent. That's so good and so clear. And the fact that you guys do that, Family Inc., is that what you called it? Yeah. So Family okay. Inc., yeah, it sells out really quick because we limit it to only 100 families. So right now, it's there's a wait list. But if people are interested, they could sign up there. Um, so in that process, we take families through. It's a year-long coaching. And we could give them a, we, a whole seven-step process. Plus, there's a library of, um, of business ideas. that. So every time a family succeeds, I'll interview them if they've done it in a way that other people could also potentially use the same business model um, because so much of this is regional. And so there's no real competition, you know, like for an example is I was just, I just did an interview with one of our family families that isn't uh, is installing pickleball courts, you know, I mean, it's just wow. his business immediately has taken off because it's a trend that's growing so fast in our area um, that, that it's able to, you know, to, to be a business very, very quickly. So we're constantly looking at, at areas like that, that, that potentially could take off his, so his freedom business was, he was, he did pickleball coaching in a corporate event. So he started to get to know people in that community. 
Then the second step was, you know, was the asset that was really scalable was, was becoming, um, you know, starting a business, actually installing courts, residential and, and also in parks and at churches. Now churches all over the place around here, like we're putting in pickleball courts. This is great. Using our parking lot for something other than cars, you know, <laughs> once a week. And then, uh, and then, you know, the legacy business, like let's get some, some real estate assets. Man, that is such a good idea. I love that. So I, I will put the link to that and everything else in the show notes at dad.work slash podcast. If you guys are listening, um, a couple more things that I want to touch on before we um, get out of here, two specifically, and we'll just see where we go from this. But one of them I love because it was, I think it was in relation to Bluey. And if anyone's a father here, they're <laughs> sure they've listened to Bluey or have watched Bluey or, you know, whatever. But it was a post that you made. And I think the idea was that the modern good father, in quotations, is really the traditional mother. And this was like mind-blowing to me in such a good way. And I think that gets to such an important point. And I wonder if there's anything else to say uh, about that so that almost on like this meta level, we can optimize as fathers for leadership and decision-making and holding the burden, basically, rather than only the emotional, soft, soppy side. Is that... Is there anything yes. in there that we can dive into a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I, so, you know, you, you watch a show like Bluey and this dad is such an incredible, he's so present with his daughters. You know, he just, he's playing with them. He's imagining with them. And oftentimes we're comparing that, that guy with the kind of absent father, the passive father. And I have to say like Bluey is, you know, a 10 out of 10 as a dad compared to, to that idea for sure. So but I, what I wanted to say is because because we do get so much, so many people saying, oh, like, like they finally cracked the code, like, like this is the most amazing show, and and so you know my daughters, I hadn't watched it, my daughters watch it, and they're like, it's so weird, he's not like a dad, like they're treating him like a plaything, <laughs> like and 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 so then I started watching some clips, and I'm like, okay, I, I think I get what's going on because I've seen this trend, it's been growing, and I think it's 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 to the point now where people can't even notice it, which is um, which is this idea. That, that what what culture really, really wants to celebrate is what a good father is, is present and a good father is play playful and a good father, you know, is is, is in that level of, of engaged um, all the time with his kids, especially when they're young. And, uh, you know, a lot of this is, I think, coming from in traditional uh, cultures, there was an expectation that the mother would always be present, that the mother like you skinned your knee you know, within seconds, you could run in your house, and your mother would be right there. Like, like, if you wanted, if you were, you wanted to, to do a game, or you wanted to learn, something, like, the mother was available to, to, she had nothing better to do than to be with the children. That that, that was the traditional idea of motherhood. Um, and so I think, I think this strange thing, and, and then the fathers were trying to expand the family. They were responsible for training the children. They were responsible responsible for you know for leading the family into like a new place, and so there was a desire to free up the father to to have that kind of uh, activity. And then uh, in in the like ancient household, the father was very engaged with the kids, especially as they got older. Um, but usually, when they were very young, um, you know that that was the, that was a time where they were very engaged with their mother, and that's why you even have in almost every ancient culture a rite of passage where the, the sons are you know, pulled away from the mother to be with the father once they reach adulthood, to be with the men and, and to go out and, and to do the things that men need to do to protect the family, to provide for the family, to expand um, the, the resources of the family. And so th that's, it's important to say that's the tra traditional father and that what Bluey is really uh, like uh, embodying is the traditional mother. And, and I, think, I think it's important to know that. I think part of it is, I think it's important to say, like, our culture does not believe in the traditional father. The culture doesn't want to see that guy out there being patriarchal, you know, expanding the family, training his family, being being ready to take on the kids as they become adults and bring them into the kind of the larger uh, work of the family. And part of this, you know, is there there is definitely a gender breakdown between, you know, what we would want to see men and women do that's becoming extremely blurry um, and, and so it's difficult to know, like, okay, what, what is the man's responsibility and what is the woman's responsibility? But I think that in the, in the midst of that blurriness, it's not like we're not presenting models of fatherhood. We're just presenting them as the traditional mother. Mm, yep. I love that. And I actually, I mentioned that on a, a call, a um, presentation I gave this morning. Um, a lot of the reason that men aren't leading 
in marriage and relationship, I think, is because of what you're saying is this blurried, blurry line about who you're actually supposed to be. And I think most people, having grown up in this you know, culture the way it is, probably see themselves and their wives as supposed to be, you know, exactly at the same point, half leading this, half working here, half financially um, providing. And they don't see the fact that one of them ought be leading. And they just wonder why things are a little bit sketch around the edges. And it's because we don't have that, like you said, someone to look to to go, oh, yeah, right, this is my role. And that's okay. And yet everyone's just like, oh, no, if you say that, then, you know, we've got to cancel you and all the rest. So um, I'm, I'm appreciative that there are still some men out there willing to take the lead on that. Um, and I think the last question, even though I'd love to go for many hours, I really appreciate this, even personally, so thank you, um, is just the uh, another uh, tweet or Instagram or something I read was raising your kids to be good parents as a way to be a good dad. It's like, wow, that's an interesting thought. Rather than optimizing for your children's happiness themselves, or maybe happiness isn't the right word, but getting them to be good parents. Can you talk a little bit about that before we uh, get your links and socials and stuff like that? Yeah. So you ask most parents today, like, what's the point of parenting? And they will say to make their kids happy. And that's a great way to make your grandkids unhappy. And this is what multi-generational fathers really understood. And that is that, that they, they were, they were training and disciplining and, you know, educating, um, and sometimes, you know, helping their children, you know, learn to be, learn to serve, you know, learn to, uh, experience delayed gratification because what they're thinking of is their future grandchildren. I, I'm constantly thinking about my future grandchildren when I'm parenting my kids. I'm looking at a character issue and I'm not saying, how is this? Well, I guess this isn't really getting away their happiness. I mean, it's just who they are. They're kind of wired that way. And, and so let's just like constantly accommodate, you know, that individual self-expression. There is no, there is no such thing as like a, a bad character quality. There's just who they are, how they're wired. But there is, if you're asking a very specific question, and that is, will this make them a good or bad father? Will this make them a good or bad mother? Okay, well, we're going to train on that because I do not want your, I don't want your your children, my grandchildren suffering from this character issue. And so we're going to, we're going to work on that. We're going to confront that. We're going to, you know, work through these things. And so, um, and so I, I just think that's a very different way to think about parenting. Um, and I think it's in everyone's best interest. I think this is going to make your kids more happy. Um, I think this is going to make everyone more flourishing, but I do think it's a different thing to aim at. And I think that the default of aiming at your children's happiness is creating terminal generations. And we've never seen it happen like today. You know, this this obsession that we have with with ex- expressing sort of personal freedom or, you know, basically self-expressive individualism. I think this is the real root of the fertility rates just dropping like like crazy all across the world, because when cultures begin to value that kind of self-expressive individualism above family, then, of course, they're going to opt out of family because I can't imagine something that gets in the way of your, you know, your impulsive freedom more than children. I mean, and, and that that used to be a virtue like, yes. That's part of like, it's amazing to have a child. They're going to, they're going to ruin your life and turn you into a much better person. Like they're going to cause you to, to really get outside of yourself and love someone else more than you love yourself. Like that's something we want for everyone. And that is a virtue for everyone, but that's not a virtue that a parent today has towards their children. Today, the way that most parents think towards their children is I don't want that for my kids. I want my kids to be maximally free to self, to express themselves uh, as an, as an individual. Um, I don't want them to be maximally able to sacrifice their interests for the interests of others. Um, and that kind of humility, that kind of loyalty, that kind of love is what parents need to be parenting their children to, to, to have. Um, and if for no other reason, like, like think about your grandchildren, <laughs> like love your grandchildren by raising your kids to, to be able to resist their impulses and, you know, and, and to, to serve others. And so, yeah, that's, I think that, we have to clarify what we're aiming at in parenting. It's not, it's not happiness. And if we make that the, the beginning and end of parenting, I think, I think everyone's going to lose. Yeah. hundred percent agreed. And I, I've been talking a lot to the guys in our group about the, the, the power of sacrifice. I mean, yes. I think that sacrifice is the antithesis to so much of what we're seeing today. And it's the power that saved the world. I mean, that's just yes. the base of it. And so many men as leaders aren't willing to sacrifice their childish impulses for their family. And a lot of guys come to our programs going like, Oh, I'm watching porn. I'm playing video games. I'm doing all this kind of stuff. It's like, 
well, you there's only room for one child in a father son relationship, <laughs> right. and it can't be you. Um, and so, anyway, yeah, this is uh, this awesome. has been fantastic, very very much edifying to me, and I know for all the guys listening as well. Um, where would you like to send people? I'm going to add all the links to the show notes, as I said. But what's the best way to get in touch uh, and maybe even work with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family Teams is a great place to be if you're interested in you know in, in kind of what we've been talking about today. Um, I also sort of explore my own ideas. I, so we have a family teams podcast. I have a Jer- Jeremy Pryor's podcast. You, know, you can follow me on Twitter and you'll get my latest, you know, ponderings there if you want, like uh, Kurt's been picking up on. And um, if you're interested in ministry through the family, like if you're, if you're, if you're kind of, you know, been a believer and, and really want to see a different kind of way of doing ministry that's through the household, we also have a nonprofit called um, 1000 houses. It's at one kh.org. So those are kind of my three places I live, familyteams.com, one kh.org. And uh, on the Jeremy Pryor podcast, Substack, Twitter, all that stuff. Awesome, man. Well, I will 100% be checking out all of that myself personally. So I highly encourage everyone listening to do the same. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for all of this. It's been awesome. And uh, guys, if you want to make sure you get the show notes and all the links, dad.work slash podcast. Thank you for listening. We will catch you here next time. Thank you for listening to the Dad Work Podcast. That's it for this episode. But if you would like to stay in touch between weekly episodes, why don't you go over to Instagram and follow me there because I drop a number of things throughout the week that are related to what we talk about on this podcast, but usually go a little bit deeper, provide some tips. You can find me on Instagram at dadwork.curt. That's D-A-D-W-O-R-K dot C-U-R-T. And please, if you have been getting something out of this podcast, if it has touched you, if it has improved your marriage, your parenting, or your life, would you please leave a quick review on Apple or Spotify leave a rating. If you have a few extra seconds, leave a quick review. That's the best way that we can get this work in the hands of more fathers. And I truly believe that we change the world one father at a time because each father that parents better, that loves better, raises children who do the same. And in just a couple of generations, I feel like we could be living in a world much better than the one we live in today. Your review will help along that path. And I thank you so much for being here to listen. Until next week, we'll see you then.